I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Flight of the Navigator. The original 1986 trailer for this one is frankly atrocious. I mean, I've played trailers before that don't really sell the film, but this one, it's appalling. I'll be playing it later for you, but let's start off this one with the title theme by Alan Silvestri of the Avengers fame. This episode was sponsored by Greg Downing and Nick Ord. And it's a bittersweet one because Sharon and I record this on the eve of our 20th anniversary together. And our initial plans for 2020 had us in Florida tonight, hanging out with three of our four guests. Karu Nagisa. We miss you, man. Debbie Morse. Wish, wish we could be doing exactly that. Of Sequentially Yours, Hollywood actress, stunt lady, and diving aficionado Maya Santandrea. Same as Debbie and Kairu said, I wish you guys were here. Yeah. And it would have been even better if Chris Chipman had also been there with his family basking in the white Sarasota Sands with us. Absolutely. I was going to say, I was feeling a little left out of your club there. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, for the 2020 that actually happened, Florida got a scorching case of COVID. Same as everywhere else, only more intensely in Florida. And instead of going there, we get to talk about a lovely movie set largely in Florida uh, that was instrumental to many of our childhoods. So on balance, things could, of course, be a lot worse. Now, this one feels like it took a side road from our Steven Spielberg season, being clearly somewhat inspired by Close Encounters of the Third Kind, in that it's about a 12-year-old boy named David Freeman who gets taken up from his domestic setting on a spacecraft. Unlike Close Encounters, this is a much more human story about someone who wants his family back because he got snatched away from his home time in 1978 and dumped eight years later in 1986 as a quirk of interstellar travel. Meanwhile, the well-meaning intelligence on the ship, Max, fills up the kid's head with star charts and now he needs them to get home. Also on the Spielberg tip, we have a healthy dose of E.T. influence, seeing an initially scary otherworldly scenario from a kid's eye view whilst shady government scientists from NASA hound him to get at what's in his head, just like Johnny freaking Monomic. And he bonds with his new alien friend after a rocky start as they hurtle off around the globe, evading capture and trying to get David home until he realizes that this tangent universe just isn't it. It was optioned by Disney for a 1986 release after they passed on that dirty incest comedy Back to the Future, and Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg were hunting for live-action hits after Splash. 
weirdly, though, if you listen to the trailer, it's like they didn't want anyone to see this thing, and they made it sound as fluffy and non-impactful as possible, aiming it at babies, when it's kind of perfect for smart ten-year-olds. When you're just growing up, every day is a new discovery. But nothing David Freeman has ever experienced will prepare him for the adventure that lies ahead. Sit down! I think there's been some sort of mistake. Your brain contains data necessary to get me and my friends home. I'm just a kid. You are the navigator. Walt Disney Pictures presents a new adventure fantasy. What are you doing? Above and beyond the ordinary. Take me back! Okay. Of the navigator. Do something! You're the navigator, not me. 20,000 feet and falling. Come on, one of these has to start it. His mind is the key to an adventure on the most fantastic hot rod in the universe. A story of a spaceship. That flying saucer's first rate. Be cool, dudes. A friendship. I'm gonna miss you. I'm going to miss you too. And an experience beyond imagination. Don't you want to take a turnpike? I'm the Navigator. Flight of the Navigator. Disney's new adventure fantasy. It's not even Max's voice. They may as well have just filmed a piece of pie and said, if you want to see Flight of the Navigator, it's no skin off my nose. 34 years later, Sharon and I got the extremely rare now, UK release but region free, Second Sight Blu-ray, and it is absolutely stunning, and there is no way it ever looked this sumptuous on the kind of titchy little dingy Mom and the Kids Saturday morning matinee screen that it was most likely shunted onto for release, up against things like the Care Bears movie too. Karu, you had a story about your own mom and this movie, <laughs> right? Yes, um, actually, I, I have uh, a couple of very short ones, but Careful. my mother specifically, um, when they were filming this film, she crossed the Hollywood Boulevard Bridge every day, every several days. She saw um, the Max prop, the full-size one, hanging from a crane every morning over the bridge, having no idea what it was until the movie actually came out. Uh, that's the bridge that their uh, second house is right in front of. Mm-hmm. All right. And, yeah, that my mother crossed that bridge every day back and forth to work, and she saw it when they were filming this. And uh, she she still thinks it's the coolest thing in the morning in the world. I have been to the set at the very beginning with the frisbee championship. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's uh, Watson Island, which is Biscayne Bay. I actually saw the Beach Boys there. Oh, uh, that's yeah. a neat crossover. Yeah, and America, but more more importantly, the Beach Boys for this particular film. And the place where they filmed the wooded area by David's house, mm-hmm. that's the Via Vizcaya Museum and Gardens. And I went there several times as a kid. That's a double uh, crossover at thinking about it, because America, I'm assuming you don't mean you saw the, the nation of America. You saw the <laughs> musical act America. Yeah. Who provided yes. the music for uh, The Last Unicorn, which was a commission last year? Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. That's Big Al's place. That, Big. Uh, was, fil- that was filmed in Jupiter at uh, Burt Reynolds Ranch at the time. And, uh, yeah, Jupiter, my mother's cousin, lived there for several, several years. When it actually looked largely like that, this kind of wooded area with nothing around for miles, Mm. it is now really built up, and that's one of the reasons why said cousin moved away from there. But there was a time when, yeah, Jupiter, Florida was just like that. 
I'm assuming this uh, movie kind of uh, is both uh, nostalgic for you because it shows you a Florida that was, but also makes you feel kind of at home because you recognize things that still are. Very much so, yes. Mm. This this movie hits me on a number of nostalgic levels, uh, not least of which it was on a tape with um, Last Starfighter and Candleshoe, and I wore that tape out so nice. much. Wow, that's that's wild. Um, it was on the same tape as Last Starfighter in my house, too. <laughs> nice! <laughs> my dad would just put it on, and he knew my brother and I loved both of those movies, so we'd just go straight through them both every time. Yeah, I, I basically had six hours of entertainment with this one VHS. But to put this in perspective, imagine being a 12-year-old boy from the year 2012 in the middle of the Obama administration, looking forward to what comes after the Avengers and whatever sports team you're interested in, shunted forward to 2020 and the nightmare of being trapped here and now. Imagine that, folks, and weep. Now, I have a feeling this discussion is going to be more conceptual and centered on detail over character development. When I started to inspect my findings, I began to interpret this as feeling like James Cameron for kids, and not just because he was one of the directors courted for it. It ended up going to Randall Kleiser, director of Rocky 1 and 5 and various Karate Kid movies. It felt like Cameron. Uh, Cameron ended up being busy with aliens. Uh, what similarities would you say there were to his work that you can, you can make out in this film? Well, the uh, CGI in it would eventually be used for the T-1000. That that particular CGI, that's the early version of the same technology that would eventually find its fame in Terminator 2. Yeah. Thematically, it's a personal story with epic implications. Yep, that's one of the things I've got. This is another one of those, what have I got written on this piece of paper? But I just, I tried to cover all the bases, but if, yeah. yeah, go for it. Any others? It's definitely got Cameron's um, uh, government bad military individuals mm. and withholding information as well yeah the yeah. the uh, the authorities are uh, pretending to be your friend but they're not your friend they're just in this for what they can get out of it they're not head. really evil they're just no, greedy they're just, and they want the thing yeah they're, they're very yeah. much in this for mm. their own agenda and they don't mind who they lie to in order yeah. to get it it follows Cameron in that you know a, a lot especially like with Terminator particularly Terminator 2 mm. and things like lies there's there's things that are very playful and and this would be awesome when you're a kid like that cut pretty deep and when you look at it as an adult this is dangerous like these situations like having uh, this this kid is in danger and people are in danger and these these government guys it, it's a really cool juxtaposition to see a Spielberg like movie because obviously you can't you can't shy away from the fact that this movie exists because someone wants to make E.T., right? Mm -hmm. that That's... It references it. Yeah. He yeah. said he wanted a phone home. Only it does it more so in a way that, that makes it its own, as opposed to, say, Mac and Me, where it's like the basic superficial framework of E.T., but with McDonald's. Exactly. <laughs> but it's cool to see a more... I, I hate to see more adult than Spielberg, but E.T. is very centered in child the whole time mm -hmm. but the world existing around this kid and this um spaceship is very um it's very dangerous and it's very real which et kind of leaves the adults 
especially the government officials, is more of an amorphous, like, you know, silhouette. Yeah. Uh, whereas this characterization, and they bring you into the heads of these guys. And to me, the fact that they're so inept, <laughs> rather than actually, you know, at least being able to protect the kid if this mm. alien was actually evil, makes it even more... Like, at any moment in time, this alien could just go, you know, switch on the Iron Giant, like, death machine thing at the end, and this kid's done, mm-hmm. you yeah. know? And they never go there, but there's always that implication. I love that the moment from the kid falling to the point where it's revealed that he was on the spaceship, the movie is like this horrifying Twilight Zone episode mm-hmm. for kids. Like, it keeps teasing I mean, you with, oh, is this a spaceship? No, it's a blimp. Is this a spaceship? It's a water tower. The fear in him. Mm-hmm. And, and as a kid, like, it brought back PTSD of watching it and going like, oh, my God, like now I had a nightmare that night of me, you know, waking up. And my parents weren't around anymore, but it's like I'm an adult. I don't even live with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not to mention the, th- the thing that struck me and just for context, put this wherever you want, Alex, mm-hmm. just for context, I didn't grow up with this movie. I had never seen it until Karu showed it to me a couple of days ago, but it it. Uh, struck me in a lot of ways that I, you know, I can talk about some of the various ones throughout this episode, but the thing that struck me the most is the level of adult decision that the kid makes at the end. Mm. Knowing what can potentially help, or what what can potentially happen, rather. And it, that really blew me away, because I buy this kid and his family, and I also buy that this kid is mature enough at that point in the story to make this decision. And that blew me away. I think in relation to that, there's a very specific juxtaposition between the uh, twisted version of the truth that he is offered by NASA. Mm -hmm. The hospital can't help you. We can do all sorts of things. We've got some great machines, great technology. We can answer your questions. You'll only be there for 48 hours and we can give you the answers to all of your questions. Here's some toys. That is not informed consent. What Max tells him at the end is... We can try this, but you might get liquidated. That's Vaporized. about as informed as consent gets. Yeah. 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 And uh, Howard Hesseman in this, um, that's another bit of nostalgia for me, because between reruns of WKRP, head of the class, and this, he has been, he was a big part of my childhood, mm. and his voice always, his voice in this particular case, it brings up a sense of fear and... Uh, distrust because he plays this part so well and so sincerely, even though he's kind of a bit of a bumbler in many ways. Mm-hmm. I, I'd only realized that now as an adult looking at his actions in the context of the film, despite the fact that he screws up on a fairly regular basis, this is not short circuit where the bad guys are clearly idiots. No, he, at the very least has the attitude that he is this puppet master. Yeah. Mm. There's a moment and- when the uh, the ship that they are obviously aware David is on starts to fall and everybody's really panicking and it only occurred to me today that, I mean, this is highly unlikely to have been intentional, but there is a little bit of an underpinning there of, oh my God, if this kid dies, we are going to get the shit sued out of us. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I had yeah. that thought too. Like they, they just suddenly thought, like, oh my god, this thing could actually kill him, and if anything happens to him, it's on us yeah. completely. Uh, the, I could almost also imagine that during the free fall, Faraday was like, he broke out of his room. We're not liable. 
Possibly. It's Sarah's fault. Yeah, he, yeah, I was just about to say he's working out <laughs> like, a way you can blame it yeah, on Karen. Blame it on the blame teenage girl. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it is actually now that you mention it, Chris, a lot scarier that they are a bit incompetent. It's it's almost better to imagine our uh, benevolent rulers as being really on the pulse and actually knowing what they're doing, and it's a lot more frightening knowing that they know shit about shit. And are in yeah. fact all stroppy children having tantrums because they can't get what they want. We want a men in black. We don't want men in cack. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, one person who hasn't been able to talk about this and their past is Maya. Uh, did did you did you grow up with this one? Uh, yes and no. I I didn't really grow up in it in the, grow up with it in the same way. Like it wasn't it wasn't on my collection of VHS movies that were just taped off of the TV or from a rental or something. Mm. Um, I think I watched it maybe once when I was a kid, and then actually revisited it a couple of years ago just to see how well it held up. Um, so. It was still a bit fresh in my mind, but I also did, you know, rewatch it on Disney Plus, mm. you know, pretty recently. Oh. Uh, and and I always had kind of a good feeling about this movie. Like this makes me feel very nostalgic for that time and for that era, even though mm. I didn't watch it every single weekend, like you know, like some of you guys did. Uh, but it definitely brought me back to that time and and to to being in that place of like when you're a kid everything is absolutely terrifying everything feels completely scary and like i was with this kid 100 percent. he may as well have been taken by somebody he may as well have been abducted and like left in someone's basement for eight years uh because that's essentially the the traumatizing experience that he Mm. goes through so that kind of struck me pretty hard of like it's unbelievable now watching this and thinking they're just like they just drive by somebody's house and they're like, oh, do you want to play over at this kid's house? OK, there there you go, Jeffy. Have fun. And I, make sure you get home before dark. Like they just leave that on him to just make his way back home after dark. Like, yeah. wow. That- and, and I used to do the same thing. It's unbelievable now to think that that's what it, it that's what it used to be like. That's just what you used to do. And it's it's such a scary thought to think these kids are just out in the middle of the woods and, and it's dark and they don't really know where they are and uh yeah that really struck me as like i i cannot even imagine anybody thinking to do that nowadays it feels like that's part of the 1978 world building to me though yeah. and in particular um, there's one other thing that i noticed there are kids wearing just you know shorts and trainers Playing with sparklers, no gloves, no adult supervision. And I'm sat there going, okay, somewhere between 1978 and 1986, there were an awful lot of adverts about don't let your kids do this with sparklers. It's horrendously dangerous. Hey, hey, Sharon, I I got got a hot tip for you. In South Florida, they still do that. Yeah, Yeah. they do. Florida man. (laughs) Plays with sparklers. Yeah, yeah. No, no, they're they're one of those the Florida man is a meme. <laughs> on an alligator farm. <laughs> yeah. Especially on an alligator farm, okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, of, yeah. one of the things that um, really struck me about this view through, though, and it never occurred to me before, but again, as a nearly 40-year-old person now, his mother insisted that he go and meet his little brother, even though he didn't want to. Can you imagine the guilt she felt for eight years oh, yeah. nonstop that 
if she had just not sent him, yeah. if she had just listened to him when he said he didn't want to go, David would still be alive today. On top of that, you, when she, uh, when when uh, um, he says, "Who's that?" talking about the old, eight years older, like fifteen-year-old kid in the uh, doorway of the uh, darkened hospital, she's like, "That's your brother, Jeffrey." And I'm like, "Oh shit, poor yep. Jeff." In retrospect, as an adult, like, as a kid, you're like, yeah, you deserve to be punished, Jeff. But as an adult, you're like, oh, God, they must have punished you mentally, maybe even physically they for eight years. They made him go out and put up posters of his missing brother every Saturday for nearly eight years. Hey, Mom. Hey, Dad. I graduated today. Oh, fine. Your brother is missing brother. because of you yeah. still. Off you go. In case, in case you forgot, this was all your fault and we're never going to let you live that down. Yeah. Jeffrey. Yeah. One of the, uh, one of the uh, sort of subtle things that you see is he taught Bruiser how to catch a frisbee. Yes. I noted yes. that this time. Yeah. Yeah. I love that little detail. Like, oh, he finally, <laughs> there, there's uh, there's Bruiser's character arc. He finally learned how to catch that frisbee. Yeah. <laughs> Good well, I can imagine Jeff just obsessing over this for years. Mm. Oh, well, that's and, his bargaining. If I can teach Bruiser to catch this frisbee, David will come home. <laughs> well, and clearly not just the parents were angry and punished him, but he was punishing himself. Oh, yeah. Like, he was clearly kind of... He was a shit little brother when we see him at the beginning there. Mm-hmm. And he knows it. Yeah. And all of those eight years, and he sees David coming back, like, David back, and he's like... <clears throat> he's... It, I think... It was very subtly played. And side note, like, this whole family, like, blew me away. Mm -hmm. Like, all of the acting was absolutely 100% spot on. But the brother, like, you got to think what is going through his head when, like, I, he feels like he caused his brother to disappear. Yeah. And, like, his brother's back and, like, is my brother going, going to hate me and want to kill me? And it's almost, it's so much weirder that he hasn't aged. It's like if he came back and he'd been in someone's basement and he's 20 and, you know, has a massive beard. It's quite amazing that Jeffrey didn't freak out when he saw David. Like, no, it can't be you. It was never you. I I have to say, I think the relationship between the two of them is one of the most fascinating things in this film. Because they they effectively castle each other. There's Um, the term, you're my big little brother. Yeah. which is just this such this uh-huh. weird scenario that never happens in any other Absolutely. film or TV show that I yeah. can think of. But the, um, the fact that Jeff effectively went through bereavement and all of the, the guilt and, and frustration and anger that would have gone along with that has turned him into somebody who is unusually compassionate and supportive for mm. a, a 15, 16-year-old boy. And uh-huh. he is able to be... Uh, a big brother to David in a way that David previously was unable to be for him. him. David then goes back in time having learned Learned from his own brother. And that gives him an opportunity to be a kinder, more supportive brother to Jeff, which means Jeff might actually grow up to be that compassionate, supportive person without having to go through the trauma of having his brother disappear and feel guilty about it for eight years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
that's pretty yeah. heavily implied that he's going to basically evolve into that person that he was before because mm. he has David's influence as his older brother again. Absolutely. This movie has layers that this movie didn't even know about. Indeedy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Back to the camera. Oh, hang on. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing sacrifice that I, I wasn't even thinking about till this viewing that David makes at the end because most movies, the, the whole third act of the movie would be him working out the trauma of, you know, you left me, you guys, or, you know, you, you did this. or there, There'd be some way a, a new movie would make for him to blame his family. Mm. And instead of doing that, they make it very subtly, like you said, in the family being perfect actors showing off all of that trauma all of that loss, but they leave it on David to kind of go. Sometimes you can't, if you put someone in a situation that's just so un, unable to be understood, I could stay here. The government could take me and just continue to do tests on me, which means my family would lose me again. Or I can say, you know what? I'm going to potentially face death to go back and reset all of this and make sure it never happened. And that's an incredible amount of weight and layer to put on a character that, you know, it's just supposed to be this fun romp. And instead they leave all of that as subtle hints throughout the acting in the movie and make his final decision mean so much, especially for a little goofy Disney movie, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the uh, James Cameron uh, references mm-hmm. and nods. That was something that I kind of picked up on too. Once, as soon as you mentioned it, I was like, "Well, there's plenty of time travel here, and there's mm-hmm. plenty of people making decisions to, you know, either go into the past and just kind of let that ride and see what happens. And they may not, they may not survive the journey, and they may not be able to come back from it. But that's what they have to do, or they get displaced somehow mm. from having some experience with or coming into contact with an alien form 57 years it's just that uh this might be a shock to you it's long how long please 57 years what that's the thing you were out there for 57 years what happened was you had drifted right through the core systems and it's really just blind luck that a deep salvage team found you when they did. You're my old little girl. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. <sighs> okay, bear in mind this was not director Randall Kleiser copying Cameron. Cameron had barely had time to establish himself. He'd done one brilliant movie, The Terminator, and was doing Aliens when uh, this was on the table. So, he definitely wasn't yeah. operating yeah. in kid-friendly fields. This isn't uh, uh, Kleiser copying Cameron. This is uh, Kleiser producing something that Cameron almost definitely watched and went, that's neat. And that's neat too. Yeah. And not not that he stole it, but just like this would have spoken his language and appealed to him. And yeah. like it it was these are qualities that I find immensely appealing within both Cameron's oeuvre and this film. And if anything, this prepared me to embrace Jim's work. So it was a gateway drug. Uh Another thing that both of them do, treating every viewer like they're the same age. That's why this works at odds with the shitty trailer. It was like, Flight of the Navigator is the brand new alien movie, fun for all the family. It's like, no, no, fun, just doing it like that treats everyone like they're adorable little morons. This one treats everyone like they're the same age. Mm. Um, It it is indeed fun for the whole family, but when you use that phrase... 
you think it's a kid's film. Yeah, mm. it's there, the inverse of how they, they portray that. Yeah, there is a particular moment that is very specifically, I think, designed to engage that smart 10 to 12-year-old kid mm-hmm. bracket, though, and that is when Max says, you are the navigator. The navigator. That is directly to the audience. That's to hit you in the, this is you, you are mm. driving, you are being given this responsibility. Wow, my own Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I can't remember who said it, but it is a very personal tale amid big sci-fi, shiny, reflective metal. There's big trucks, which Jim seems to be well into. That clean NASA aesthetic. You know how Cameron has like people wearing casual clothes in a slightly military setting? It's got that too. Scientists in the control room all conversing about this big deal on their hands that they can barely understand. And an unexpected connection... A machine with a soul and a bittersweet ending. Cameron does all of those very, very well. Yes, yes, he does. And uh, and it's it's it, uh, this is not again. This is me saying all props to Randall Kleiser and company for being able to pull this one off to such little fanfare. Like this is a cult classic, and people who've seen it and love it and tell them throughout the years, I love this movie. This meant so much to me. Like a lady had named her gecko. Um, a puckmarin or something like that. Sure, she she desperately wanted. Oh, she wanted a puckmarin, so she specifically so she... found a gecko that yeah. looked like it. Oh. And yeah, so this me- movie means a lot to, to a lot of people, but it, it cost nine million dollars and it made eighteen million five hundred sixty-four thousand six hundred and thirteen dollars and ninety-eight cents. Uh, just oh, 90... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was an underperformer, but like you know, it made. Twice its budget, which you'd think would be something they could be proud of. But I think um, they were hoping for like a big Back to the Future thing. But then they realized, the Disney realized, and maybe Katzenberg realized, this isn't dangerous and racy enough for bigger audiences. Yeah. Despite having Alan Silvestri's score. Yeah. Which that, that did, I, I just learned that when we watched it a couple of days ago. I never knew who did this score that has been burned into my memory for my entire life. It is such a me- like memorable, fantastic, like evocative score that just like from the very beginning it sort of gets you sort of caught up in that funky kind of bow 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 bow, bow. and it's dogs catching frisbees like the oh cheapest God. title sequence to a big sci-fi yeah. film I've ever seen. It's so good though. It's, yeah. like, it's it's the totally awesome radical tubular funky fresh 80s soundtrack it's amazing <laughs> totally awesome 80s <laughs> it's totally awesome 80s radical <laughs> oh, flight oh, yeah. of the navigator spray painted chrome yeah. just to like yeah. mess the brain up for a minute <laughs> <laughs> is it a flying saucer is it a flying saucer no it's frisbee nah yeah. So yeah, see that's three fake outs. They do that. They go yeah, blimp in the water tower the blimp, before yeah. they reveal uh, the uh, Max and his drone ship later on as this um, thing that uh, the actual design of the ship is amazing. Like it, you know, even today, it has that it has that sort of eighties very shiny chrome aesthetic. But it's also the shape of it. Uh, if you look at the the um, drawings and they were sort of like going through like a deep sea creature, but they wanted to make it very simple. So it's somewhere between a walnut and a giant 
Crone clam with a bit of Audrey too in there. Yeah, or, or like a turtle shell. Yeah, there's a there's a. Yeah. It feels like it should open up, and that there's uh, yeah, mm. there's an implication that you know like things come out of the the floor on the inside and it changes shape. That it could probably do a lot of things that we aren't seeing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, the top of it, uh, the top of one of the models is still in Tomorrowland on top of a like refreshment station. Oh. Oh. We would have been in Tomorrowland looking at the totally awesome 80s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, things David could have taken back with him to 1986. Reagan being president, music videos are going to be big, so are Transformers, Vader is Luke's father, Leia is his sister, but also, this little company, Apple, just released their second computer ready-built for the consumer, and it's expensive, and it's at the moment in 1978 middling in popularity, but a year after David gets back in 1979, a programmer named Dan Bricklin is going to create Visicalc, a spreadsheet program for the Apple II, making it the first PC with a serious business purpose with resultant explosive sales. So David needs to get his mom and dad to sell the house, invest everything they own in Apple in mid-1978, and then live in a Motel 6 for a year, whereupon they can sell big and be richer than astronauts. <laughs> I was thinking that exact same thing. Like, this kid really needed to grab a, a sports almanac on the way out the door. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I actually really appreciate about this film, because I had that thought, and then I'm like, but wait a minute. The film is written in such a way that David has very little contact with the outside world. Yeah. He has no Almost way no of contact. knowing these things that could change that could change history, or at least change history for him. Mm. He, he knows that a music video will be a thing. Maybe he'll pick up a Twisted Sister album when he sees it <laughs> as a teenager. Yeah, like, Twisted hey, Sister, there you are. Yeah, this is a them. Also, by the way, <laughs> congratulations for him on being uh, on being able to see the Bee Gees. That is awesome. Mm. But otherwise, there's not too much that he can bring back with him because he his story is again very small with just larger implications. Most of what he saw was the inside of a NASA bedroom. Yeah, yeah. with uh, two Skywalk toys, they they went to the trouble of, of sending one of the NASA techs to Toys R Us to get him a lot of toys. And there's a Skywarp on the bed and a Skywarp in the corner. It's like, you couldn't have picked up Thundercracker, buddy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So we've talked about the influences upon the screenplay and uh, filming and where this seems to have been set up for future enjoyment sorted. And we should absolutely talk uh, further about the strengths that are this film's own. So, like, specific things to Flight of the Navigator. And one thing I've gotten down, I think we've kind of established this already, but this film plays it straight. Like, it's not really a comedy. It is a straight sci-fi with a bit of a Twilight zone feel to it. Like, you know, uh, enter David Freeman, a young boy from 1978. Or is he? And, um, and it's, it's got this, like, a kid-oriented drama about it. And, and honestly, like, you said you had the, uh, the nightmare about being without your parents, Chris, as an adult. For a kid to realize that you have been time displaced and your parents have 
run themselves ragged and you don't even really recognize them anymore and your home has been completely upset, that is fucking terrifying for, for yep. this film to lay down. This is U-rated, but I can imagine kids having many existential crises watching it and, and if, like, if they really start thinking about it and get beyond the fact that it's kind of pitched, especially by the second half, as a romp. Like, and it does play the first half very straight. The humor really comes in in the alien learning how to think like this kid. Yeah. So the alien, the same way the NASA guys are, like, buying him toys and not really getting him, the alien ship and talking to him looks into his brain and picks up TV and ends up sounding more and more and more silly and throwing in vernacular that the kid would understand, which I think is great because it's, like, late 70s vernacular instead of the 80s, which mm. is, I didn't realize when I was a kid, because, you know, in 86, it's like, you know, I, I was two. I probably really remember seeing this at, like, three or four for the first time. Mm. But uh, I love that the alien and making the kid comfortable does it, you know, because it's Paul Rubens doing the voice, mm. Pee Wee Herman. Yeah. And, but Pee Wee Herman was still an early thing, I'm pretty sure, when this came out. Like, this was like... Yeah. This big adventure had just been a film a year or two before this, if I'm not mistaken. One year. Yeah. So he wasn't even, you know, set in stone. That was a surprise to people when he breaks the peewee voice out in the second half. Mm. And I find that really clever. Um, Peewee's Playhouse that- was 86. Uh, so it yeah. was the same year as. And yeah. uh, interesting, another link to another show. Uh, Peewee's Big Adventure, directed by Tim Burton, director of Big Fish, which we did just a few weeks ago with you, Chris. And it just released today when we're recording this. Yeah. So that's. Yeah, so it, it's wild uh, to hear, like, you know, a movie that instead of, like, having. You know, a movie like, say, DreamWorks Animation made this movie now, because. Or. or um, the people that do the Despicable Me movies, right? Yeah. You Elimination. probably have had the same, like, okay, where we have this really clever plot, and they'd probably keep that, but the minute the alien showed up the first time, it'd be dropping pop culture references and rapping or saying something silly or have a funny voice. And this movie has it show up, and it's actually monotone and robotic and scary. Yeah, for a, and, quite a while, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I love that about it, that it learns the kid, and it learns... so you still have that underlying thing of, is this spaceship still going to do something bad? Like, could it be lying to the kid the same way NASA is? I like that the idea of the star charts being in his head, we realized you only use 10% of our brain, your brain. So we just thought it would be interesting to see what would happen if we filled up the other 90% with star charts. Yeah. And you sit here and go, so it's just an inept alien version of NASA that went, let's see how we can screw with this kid's head. <laughs> I was trying something. Didn't work out too well. Yeah, yeah. You you gotta listen to the way people talk, Max. And if you want to shine them on, it's hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> well, it's interesting too that you mentioned that, Chris, because I instantly distrusted the NASA dude. His name I'm not remembering it. Doctor Faraday. Faraday, like a Faraday cage, because he tries to cage David. I, I instantly distrusted him. Like, just the way he presents himself, I was not on board. But I didn't have the same issue with Max. Like, Max struck me as just being... He, he was just a robot at first. Hmm. He was just a robot. And obviously, over time, once he's... And he's pretty much just a robot until he does the 
download the mind meld, hmm. like yeah. gets the information out of Mike. Is it Mike? D- uh, David. David. But to begin Not with, of- he's whispering in David's head, which is quite scary. You've got this kind of thing going on, and, and he because. Like we're we're still trying to work out as a kid, especially you know what is up with this silver ship. There is that air of mystery, and Alan Silvestri's score plays that. Behind it, and I suppose that playing into that was the fact that obviously, but watching this as an adult. Mm. And knowing it's a Disney movie, yeah, knowing there's that, a safety like, there. Yes, things are not going to. There can be, you know, consequences and all of this, but yeah. like, they're not going to. They're not going to fry his brain. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Actually, interesting uh, note. Um, I, I, I suspect. The point where there's a great gag when um, the NASA guys rush in and David's just broken out of his little uh, uh, cell and, uh, you know, snuck in on a robot uh, to, uh, on a mobile driving robot named Ralph. Ralph Uh, Yeah. Ralph is designed to basically be a high-tech lunch trolley so the scientists can be served sandwiches from a robot and go, ooh, we're doing science. Again, that great sort of it's very Harold Faltermeyer. Yeah. Slowest escape scene ever. Yeah, very leisurely. It's like it does not. This should be a high-speed chase scene, and it's just so yeah. funny to me that this little, this cute little robot with a little light on it is just tooling around in a parking lot. It's a high-tech version of uh, uh, David sneaking around a hangar with a cardboard box over him. (laughs) Uh, But, okay, so when the NASA guys run in, one of them goes, shit, it's an alien. And it's like, uh, it's a one moment of actual swearing. The first S word in a Disney, and I realised why it was today. Uh, That's for the same reason that in the Transformers 1986 movie, uh, when uh, Unicron eats the moon, Spike says, Shit! It's to make sure that in America it got a PG because there was a perception that general audience films, like, is it a G for, for you rated, like, uh, suitable for all audiences? Yes. That they were for yes. just babies. You give it a PG, it's a little bit more dodgy. Like, this was the same certificate as Back to the Future mm. and Raiders of the Lost Ark, which we've already established has people's faces melting off. Yes. I d- uh-huh. Okay, I am going to ask though. This has the threat of a boy being vaporized in it. Why do you need the word shit to make it parental guidance? Because in in the UK, this is a U. They let the shit through. Well, yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of a U with a shit in it. There's a scene where grown-ass adults are pointing 
live ammunition at a child. Yep. Like, I know he's inside the ship, but still. E.T. Like, got a PG for that. Yeah, exactly. I Another reference to E.T. right there. The Zucker Brothers airplane is rated PG, and that has full frontal nudity in it. Yeah. Um, it's got boobs. Does it have full frontal nudity? Or... I thought the boobs were full, but I don't remember. Anyway, either way, you go back and you look at things that the U.S. considers... You know, oh, guns, we don't care. Yeah. But like, they, Again, it's you, like back in 1978, they're like, ah, let the kids see some tits, fuck it. Horrible yeah. <laughs> violence is okay as yeah. long as nobody says, says any naughty, naughty words. I think, honestly, a 10-year-old <laughs> seeing boobs would be like, <laughs> as opposed to, I'm traumatized. I, it's, it's actually intriguing <laughs> that there is, that, that we're speculating about when Max becomes trustworthy. Hmm. It never, ever occurred to me not to trust Max. Hmm. Especially when you've already had the example of the, the uh, NASA officials lying. Yeah, Max is, a, is a, an artificial intelligence. He has no reason to lie unless he's been specifically programmed to do hmm. so. And if you notice, whenever, in, in this kind of sci-fi, um, whenever you have a machine that is going to be deceptive mm. and it's, it's specifically because it's either been programmed to do so or because it's become self-aware and worked out that it is in its own interest it's to do more so. warm it's well warm. no i was no? going to say they're they're very obviously devious oh, wow. you look at robert patrick in terminator 2 mm. he is just you he stands up deceptively <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Rev, Rev Nine was scary because he was less obviously devious. Yeah, yeah. From, uh, Dark there is Fate. that to a degree. Yeah. Um, so that's the evolution also, away from just obviously yeah. shifty. But also, I'm thinking. Um, uh, Ash. My, no. Uh, yes, but also Bishop. newer Alien film that's not very good. Genesis. Um, Michael. Oh, uh, Fassbender. Michael Fassbender. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and- uh, the, uh, David. Yes. Yeah. But he's like you. You just look at him and you think, well, he looks incredibly shifty. Like he's after my organs. Yeah. <laughs> Almost yeah. immediately. Absolutely. But when you have a, um, an AI that looks more mechanical, yeah. There's there's no reason. To he's out of the uncanny valley. Yeah. That it's going to do exactly what it says on the tip. Yeah. And also he speaks very factually to David mm. and very straight out. Like whenever David asks a question, he answers. This is how, like you know, like how do you uh, you know deal with kids who keep asking questions? You answer the, the question, but you do it straightforward. Yeah. And if they ask another question, you be incredibly like straightforward about it like they keep asking questions because they see that you're getting flustered and that you're you're going in strange directions to not answer their mm. questions yeah and also if you still haven't answered their question of course they're going to keep asking you yeah. <laughs> be direct and um also max is honest when he doesn't know something do not know bathroom do not know promise yeah. he is up front when do not know bathroom he's like what are you doing yeah to, to to David, where like you study wildlife, dude. Nothing else pisses on other planets. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was my thought. I Karen can attest to how I ranted about this in the movie. I'm like, really? You studied how many species? Of the I've studied species? five species, and none of them have whizzed yet. <laughs> and then every human being does. Period, there was a no sea slug and a giant eye. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
but but there is something very fascinating about the way that Max uses language because mm. initially it is all about exchange of information. He is providing uh, information. He is giving suggestions for ways to get it's out. Almost transactional. Exactly, yeah. and and when he is asking David for something, it's because he's got the star charts and he, he wants the information. Once he has scanned David's brain, <laughs> he starts using language to bond like a human would. And because what he's extracted is the exchange with Jeff, he bonds with him like, like a brother. brother. Ah, yeah. He messes with him oh. like a brother. Mm. Yeah. Will this hurt? You will feel nothing. Will I remember everything? You will retain all that. How many times have you done this thing? Zero. Zero? You mean never? I'm not going to let you try this out on me. What if you fry my brain? I will not fry your brain. How do you know? I have been programmed with superior intelligence. Lie down. Okay. That's it? That's it, Davy. Davy? If you want to learn to swim, you've got to jump in the water. Don't forget to feed Bruiser. To all these patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, on a sesame seed bun. Whoa! <laughs> this can't be happening. I think I've gotten some stuff out of your head that has nothing to do with navigating this ship. You sound just like a human. No! That dumb dog will never learn to catch a frisbee. You are an inferior species, you dumb dork. Butt face. Ghost bucket. <laughs> hey, well, if you're so perfect, what are you still doing here? I told you, I blew a fuse when I totaled out that electrical tower. I was checking out some daisies. You crashed while looking at flowers? Ha! Sounds like you're the inferior species. I'll show you who's inferior. Heads up! Hey, take it easy! Well, excuse me! You okay? And again, this is something that never occurred to me as a child, but as an adult, it really just struck me, is that this is not a Phelonian. He is a drone. He is a machine. So, of course, at the beginning, he behaves and acts like a machine. You give him input, he gives you output. Hmm. If he needs something, then he requests it. And as he picks that up, as he picks up that human understanding, then it changes his approach. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and that uh, that kind of almost secret language of of brothers. There's another film that uses that as well, to, to establish identity. Onward. Okay, wasn't even thinking of that because I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Big. Yeah. The little yeah. the rhyme between yeah. Josh and Billy. That's how he convinces Billy that he is Josh, and that is how Jeff convinces mm. David that yes, I am. Your and brother. I'm three months older than you, asshole. You're my big little friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so it's also the best use of uh, Pee Wee Herman uh, in that like, he gets to do a really great dramatic performance as this robot. And I feel like um, they made him uh, resemble people who do only speak in, in like very straightforward terms and, and, and don't... Like, you know the way that Drax doesn't grasp metaphor? Mm. Like, do not know promise. Like, he doesn't understand any abstraction. So it's like, it's, it's just everything's got to be straightforward. Um, but then when he starts going, you know, crazy, he's extremely, uh, you know, amusing and endearing. Probably a bit uh, over the top for adults now, but maybe fine for adults then. But it made me start thinking... 
How could this film have been more popular? Like, it made twice its budget. Could it have made more had they cashed in on Pee-wee's Playhouse? And his he was billed as Paul Mal in the uh, credits. And I'm guessing that he said to Disney, you are not allowed to use my personality or my name to sell this film. And it made me think of another scenario that happened like that with Disney. And that was, uh, what, six years later? In 1992, when Robin Williams said, okay, I won't work for my, my customary $8 million for this. I'll work for the same price as the average voice actor but i'll work to scale and to that end you can't advertise using robin williams as the genie and you can't show people the genie and then they did and they upset him a lot and it took years to to repair that damage and i just thought why can't these people work this shit out Audiences like to see stars. Stars like to be celebrated, and stars like to be in successful movies, and studios like money. How difficult is this to sort out? The answer is, of course, very. Uh, Alex, I have some good news for you, actually. Okay. Regarding that. he That was not what happened here. Paul Rubens requested to not have his name put in the credits um, because he thought it would be fun if there was a mystery around mm. who did the voice of Max okay. in the same way that um, monster movies from the 30s to the 50s, you know, the monster would be credited mm. as question mark, question mark, question mark. He was That's doing this in order yeah. to enhance the uh, enjoyment of people watching and give them something to play with and to okay. think about. Okay. That's well, kind of that... what I was thinking too. Like I thought I remembered hearing something about that where he didn't necessarily want the association. He mm. wanted it to be kind of a surprise to people going to see it. Well, it was a great surprise to the hardly any people who showed up. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, as this is like basic laugh, 101 exactly marketing. Show your stars. When they were filming it and when they were writing all the contracts, mm. he was not a star. Yeah, true. Yeah. Afterward, yeah. But I mean, at the time, he was what? That dude who was in the Cheech and Chong movie? One of the Cheech and Chong movies? Mm-hmm. He had a stage show at one point um, before Pee-wee's Big Adventure and all mm. the, the movies in the show and everything like that. But I'm pretty sure it was kind of obscure at that point even. Okay. And it was adult influence. And it was kind of like a more racy version of The Muppet Show. Big um, time. The, the oh, wow. was winky. It was like, look at this big man-child you know, doing a Saturday morning cartoon, but he'd show up on like Saturday night live and, you know, second city TV and stuff like that doing it. And it mm-hmm. was meant to be like, you know, a little bit more sexually explicit. His content was definitely for adults at that point. So the, the, the Tim Burton Pee-wee's big adventure thing was a rebranding of that, but it was still rebranding it into a Tim Burton version of the character, which is not the Pee-wee that's on Pee-wee's playhouse. Grant, you know, <laughs> however, <laughs> Pee-wee's Big Adventure, I've just checked now, cost $7 million, and it made $40 million, more than twice as much as Flight of the Navigator, the year before. You'd think that the Disney financiers would say, at least vaguely, you know, featuring the star of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, that film that $40 million of you went to see, and I'm <laughs> sure would come back to see playing this guy, <laughs> doing that voice. Like, look at that trailer. It's not even his voice in the trailer. It's like, you are the navigator. Your brain contains data necessary to get me and my friends home. I'm just a kid. 
You are the navigator. I, I just, I don't understand it. I don't understand how Katzenberg and Eisner, these two massive sharks who are like, we got to make money, money, I tell ya. Enough of you lollygagging around here, Disney. You got to do some hard graft. Uh, we don't need to advertise this. It's fine. We don't need to say that there are these <laughs> things in it that will definitely sell yeah. the film. <laughs> How many monies is people? But like similarly, like what did they think was going to happen with Aladdin once they knew that Robin Williams was fucking dynamite? Like, could they not at least renegotiate it and say, right, Robin, we didn't realise that you were going to be the best thing about this film, and it's a that's a tough competition because Aladdin is beyond perfect, and Robin Williams mm-hmm. helps to make it beyond perfect, and that made me think that Robin Williams could have played Max and done it really well. We could have got that kind of, oh, actually, I kind of understand what it is to be human now, uh, like near the end of the uh, thing and just like had them bond in that way that Aladdin and the genie do there. And, you know, we've come to this planet looking for intelligent life. Oops, we made a mistake. That kind of like, his, <laughs> like him just riffing, that would have just been cha-ching, 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 cha-ching. Everyone would have fucking loved Flight of the Navigator at that point. But... It didn't and wouldn't, and I don't get why they weren't like, hey, we've got Pee Wee Herman. He's like the 1986 Robin Williams. Wow, how did you do that? That was a third-class maneuver, Navigator. Well, if that was a third-class maneuver, what's a first-class? Observe. And then around Joey Kramer, there's this classic Hitchcock and Spielberg deep-focus shot where they move the camera in while zooming out at the exact correct speed so that the world shifts around him. It's wonderful. This first class maneuver allows me to slide through your planet's thick atmosphere. I can move at any speed. I can speak thousands of languages. I can analyze species from civilizations light years beyond yeah, your own. Yeah, can... can you fix this seat? I'm fine. That's great. Now, could you slow down a little? Compliance. Cool. Would you like me to adjust the temperature? No. (laughs) Hey, this is fun. Fun, Navigator? My name's David. David? Yeah. So what do I call you, anyway? I am a Trimaxian drone ship from... Trimaxian? Affirmative. Okay, I'll call you Max. It's easier. Max? Right. And there's this amazing sense of freedom as they zoom out across the world. These moments for me rival any Superman flight. I wanted to fly, but I also wanted a spaceship. Just take me somewhere where they can't find us. Compliance. What are you doing? And Max takes them deep underwater. Um, technically, a Trimaxian drone ship can't go underwater. It's not the same as outer space. Mule! And I mean, I've never really watched much Pee Wee, so that I don't have a nostalgic connection to him either. Okay. But him being, like, him being his more typical persona for more of the movie or more more amped up than it already is would definitely have been something I would I would have, I think, made me enjoy the movie less. Personally. Oh, okay. 
What, what if it had been, in my adolescent awkwardness, I accidentally cut the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Let's move on from uh, Max. I've got a whole bunch of other stuff to cover and we've got 29 minutes to do it. Okay. There is, we haven't really mentioned her, but there is a sweet connection between Carolyn and David, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker. And it wasn't until I was older that I realised, shit, basically David's about her age had things gone differently you know they're about 20 oh god you're right yeah and although she sort of relates to him like a younger brother that she knows you know you're cute like you know just like she's big sisterly to him Mm. there's a not a romance between them but like she seems to care about him and then she puts her own life on the line to to go and deal with his parents so it's a that's a nice Oh, put it like this, it's the least toxic of like, you know, boy-girl relationships that you could show just in terms of how people can care about each other and not necessarily want anything from each other. He gets to try out the things his father said, mm. but subconsciously without really knowing it. Like, because, you know, there's not that, you know, I need to win this prize aspect mm. of any of his... Like, when you think the setup with the little girl... That like he likes that like yeah Jessica Bradford Jennifer Bradford yeah like the movie he's gonna come back and you know when watching it this time I'm like am I forgetting a part is he gonna look at his parents on the boat and then see that girl on the boat and run down there and like jump in the boat and give her a kiss like is this is how we're gonna do this and the movie doesn't do any of that it leaves you knowing that he's grown up through this process and built confidence so that will happen at some point in his life but we don't have to show it it's not part of his arc and I think that's wonderful. At the beginning, yeah, the very way- specifically, he's creeping at Jennifer through a telescope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like- that was really weird. He's yeah. flying on her on the bus, <laughs> and like, and the way I think Chris, the way to do like if they if they had had that moment, if they did want to do that moment, the way is he sees her maybe going out on her own boat and just goes and strikes up a little conversation with her and's like, hey. Let's hang out and do something sometime, and then they just leave it at that. I would have been okay with something like that as a little button on the end to wrap up that part of the story, but but they decide not to do that either, which is also fine. But you're right about the the sort of practicing the not flirting exactly, but the being able to talk to a girl without sniggering Getting yourself all... into a puddle. Yeah. Um, but like he's nervous of Jennifer. Like she's like, "Hi, David," at the beginning, <laughs> and then he's like. Hey. <laughs> David's got the hearts for Jennifer Bradford. No, I don't. I don't like girls. This is the thing, though. If, if he strikes out with Carolyn, it's very low stakes with Carolyn, because if he strikes out, it's because he's 12 and she's 19. Yeah. Are you an angel? What? The Deep Space Pirates talk about how beautiful angels are. No, I'm not an angel. Are you an elephant? <sighs> One thing about... I think, really, the Jennifer Bradley stuff was really just so that you could establish the relationship between um, him and his father at that beginning bit. Yeah. That's really that's really about it. Give his father something to talk about. Mm. Which If you've got to learn to swim, you got to jump in the uh-huh. water. Yeah. It, yeah. It, another point of nostalgia, Cliff Young in those 78 scenes looks a lot like my father did in 1986. Oh, wow. like a lot. <laughs> and in fact, my dad had that same outfit. <laughs> I suppose everybody's dad scene. had that same outfit. Deciding yeah, to go sure. back and reclaim your place with your true family, even though you might be vaporized, is the largest jump in the water. Mm. So uh, after yeah. he's decided on that, nothing's going to scare him. Yeah, I think also the uh, the uh, Jennifer Bradley stuff. Or at least nothing's going to scare him into inaction. Yeah, um, the establishing that he is starting to be interested in girls 
puts his brain on a very specific point of maturity development mm. which is going to be necessary for when he starts making these big boy decisions yeah well and just generally that is really good advice from his dad like a you know you get i think a lot of guys do a lot of toxic behavior because at a very formative points they didn't learn like to think of a girl as a person mm. and so they build up you know talking to a member of the opposite sex into something unattainable or when like it's... a contest like i'm going to beat you here with the things that i say yeah yeah it, it, it's it's a program for so many of them how do you talk to girls well, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, select, start, and then there's two of you. Oh, that'll just get you more lives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's that's such good advice and, like, unusual for the time that, you know, that's the dad is is being very caring. He's being very involved in his son's life, and he's just just like, hey, basically saying see her as a person and treat her as such. Yeah, he takes yeah, it seriously, which is important for him at that point. And he is establishing, you, you know, you don't need, you don't need to be a show off. You don't need a fancy car. You don't need to start a fight with another guy, any of that stuff. You just need to go talk to her. The other thing that sets this apart from so many movies like it is there's nothing, nothing adventurous about this kid escaping. There's, there's nothing established that's bad in his life that he needs to get away from, which a lot of these movies like The Goonies mm. and, and other things, they set up that there's something not right about what's going on with this kid's growth that he needs to go on this adventure for. We've just established that, yeah, we learn that he fixes so many things that are established is not quite right, but none of them are the, oh, this wouldn't have been fixed without this adventure. Like, it's just... It's like almost like an allegory for adolescence and growing up rather than a, all right, he needs to do this or there's no world that's going to be okay. You know, there's no rough relationship with his parents. There's no, um, you know, bad grades in school or, you know, he gets dumped. Yeah. And gets a story is going to be sold, going to be sold off. Hmm. Exactly. <laughs> One of the strengths of this film is it pans out as two very cleanly delineated halves. There's the mystery of what's happened to David and how's he got here, and that almost exactly at the halfway point, he steps up into the Trimaxian drone ship, and then we're off on this whirlwind adventure. So that there's this whole kind of, you know, what's going on here? And it moves along at a fair old clip, and then just barrels through the, the uh, second half of the movie. This film is over before you can, like, it's got, you got whiplash, and it's not too short, but it's so short and appealing, you kind of want to watch it again as soon as it's done, at least I do. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's, it's got oh, a great yeah. pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the pacing is really great, it's very light and breezy, mm. it feels, su- it, 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 I don't know, for something like this, it feels about right, I don't think it's too short, but it does just fly right by. It's also simple, if you actually look at the kind of sci-fi concepts they're uh, dealing with, but only because they Star Trek it, like, like like putting too much air in a balloon. They don't bog it down with how it happened or, you know, the ramifications of back and forth. It's just, we went away and then came back and eight years passed 
And now if we attempt to go back through time, it could vaporize you. That's all the science you really need to know. And the rest of it is dealing with the Rip Van Winkle emotional concept of this isn't really my world and I don't feel at home here. And that just it feels very economical to be able to get that done. And again, in a non-patronizing way, deliver this, you know, conceptual story to kids. This was the first movie that ever introduced me to the concept that as you move faster to the speed of light, mm. time changes for you. Yeah. It also suggests a much bigger universe out there. You know, uh, Max has been traveling around to various other planets, some of which have been destroyed by comets, um, just kind of rescuing aliens. And he's got this kind of crew of orphans, I suppose, like all these you know, weird little Muppet rejects, like Salacious Crumbs, uh, you know, the, the guys who don't want to hang out with Salacious Crumb. They're very limited, quick creature effects, but they're there enough to make you feel like there's bigger things out there. It, it gives you the shape of a wider universe. Well, and it, it, it just occurred to me, talking about this, that like there is a definite kindly bent either to Max's programming or to just him as an AI. Mm. Because, you know, it sounds like he was trying, he wanted to save these creatures, especially mm. the little... Puckmer. The little one... The Pokemon. And he's like, yeah, he won't believe me when I tell him his world has been destroyed. Yeah. And there's there's a world of of stuff in there that he's not saying. That, like, he could see that this world was going to be destroyed, presumably, and he, you know, he saved this little creature. And that's yeah. that's incredibly kind. He's got, like, a godlike view on the world in that he can see time and space in, in more dimensions than we can. And, you know, he, he does something that he hopes is benevolent, and we get pissed off at him for it because it's very inconvenient and it displaces us. And uh, in some ways, it, it ruins our connection to reality. So, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's what God would have to deal with. Oh crap, I had a thought and it okay. has left me. <laughs> so go I ahead. I pulled the I'll... view out too far. <laughs> There's a, they actually brought in a magician to help them with the uh, special effects because they were on such a tight budget. They were like, right, we're going to have a couple of effects, like the steps melting, uh, you know, into view, and then I'm going to. That was actually done through uh, like sculptures that they then um, morphed together and then played that in reverse and, and back and forth. And then the the steps that sort of hover in midair and seem totally solid, but give ever so slightly when David steps onto them, and they're like these big metal chunks that. Should be very very heavy uh, it was done with carefully hanging bars that are obscured by the angle of the camera but even watching it today it's not obvious how they did it it's excellent yep. trickery i was basically that kid in the miami vice t-shirt being like you push it look on. it's a yeah pushing that like that's, that <laughs> was my thought pushing on them <laughs> yeah like this doesn't move it just wiggles What's going on here? And Miami Vice isn't for kids. Why is that kid wearing a Miami Vice t-shirt? <laughs> it's full of he drug dealers. at the time. <laughs> oh, I suppose it, they, they showed it to that that had, re, uh, uh, that had replaced Starsky and Hutch, which gets uh, name-checked, and Randall Kleiser directed three episodes of. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nice. Uh, those stairs effects are so perfect because... Presumably behind the scenes, the way the effects look are because of the limitations at the time. Mm. But it's exactly the right amount of it looks real enough that it doesn't throw you off. Yeah. But it's just 
uncanny enough to be like, oh, yeah, this is an alien spaceship. Of course, it's not going to look quite right because it wasn't built by humans. And it like it's impressive. The effects are incredibly impressive that way. I think we've just gotten to the the core of why I love practical effects so much. And I hadn't realized it and I hadn't expected to say it here. But (laughs) back in the 80s. Specifically when like all of these creature shops and, and effects shops were just hitting their heyday of being able to do just brilliant practical. They did like four or five things really well for that film. And that was what they did in that film. And they made like, so that meant that when you went to see another film, the effects were doing something else. The issue people have with CG, they may not even know it, is that so many films do the same thing. People say, oh, all the films look the same. They don't all look the same. They don't all do things the same. And they certainly don't handle things. Like the, the, the Jaegers in Pacific Rim aren't at all the Transformers in the first five Transformers films. But the way that they, the CG gets employed is technically... Along similar lines, at least from a uh, 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 shallow enough fundamental viewpoint, as opposed to this is a very specific magic trick that requires camera angles, and you know this is a creature that requires a hand puppet, but we've obscured it, and we you know we we, we played this trick so that you can't see it, and like Yoda's walking around with Frank Oz underneath the floor. The limitations that became the mother of invention created so many of these practical effects that we love because they were just doing a couple of things per movie i'd say a big part of it is the fact that the the films that tend to make the most use of cg these days Mm. tend to be within the same genre they tend Mm. to be uh big action-y type uh, semi-sci-fi, semi-fantasy. They're aimed at the same audiences. So you will get fights and you will get spaceship chases Mm. and the CG companies that do those things are very, very good at doing those things, but you don't have that inventiveness of okay, so this is this kind of film and so we're going to do something very different. We're still going to use CG, but we're going to use... Whereas Back to the Future and Predator released two years apart are two very different films for very different audiences absolutely yeah uh-huh. yeah i i also feel like practical effects you know they especially in a movie like this they put you in a viewpoint to see them of the movie almost acknowledges that there's an effect going on and i don't mean that in like a a cheap way i mean that they want you to see it they want you to know that they're playing some magic mm. so like you said the way the camera's angled they'll have characters come and interact it and interact with it to show you this is actually here i love when the the effects are the forefront of a scene because it makes it seem more real like sitting here right now you know i'm 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 recording in an office park, a technological office park near an airport. So I see a lot of planes taken off. And just thinking about how a lot of movies in the 80s, a lot of sci-fi movies, took place in similar locales because, you know, you put one thing obscure and surrounded by reality, it's a lot more able to accept that that obscure thing is actually there. Instead, And this, this was a, a, a thing that Robert Rodriguez employs explores a lot in his um, 10-minute film school stuff that he used to do on his DVDs, mm. is he'd say, you can have a really cheap, you know, blue screen rig, but if you apply your bad CG effect to a mostly real body, it's going to be a lot more believable. Yeah. And I, I think that these movies implored that a lot more, rather than 
making everything not exist. It's why um, it's why the CG in the first three Lord of the Rings films still looks better than the stuff in the Hobbit films mm. because it was mostly model work with limited CG. Mm. Whereas you can do everything in a computer, it too much of it is being input as fake rather the, than yeah well, we've we've said this over yeah. and over again the the magic is in the blend the join between video games and uh you know high budget uh, big cg movies is is narrowing and thinning uh and like video games never used practical they couldn't that wasn't what they they did that a couple of them like i think mortal Kombat probably could be considered using practical because if they yeah. photographed the actors the original but um the this uh, one thing we haven't really mentioned we've talked about max's voice uh, Pee Wee herman but so much of max comes across through the puppeteering this was done in norway they took um joey kramer to norway for like four months and i'm like you took four months to get all the interior things done there it, it just seemed like a ridiculous amount of time to, to to have him there but at the same time the unit that were like puppeteering the whole interior of the ship and all of their interactions did such a splendid job of making this seem like this living technological bioorganic place that um you know and max himself every little gesture like the tilt of his like head like piece and like he's kind of like glados if you think yeah. about it <laughs> And uh, and I don't know whether they recorded it first and then played that voice through there or whether there was another actor just feeding the lines to Joey Kramer. But the end result is, as a kid and an adult, you never don't buy Max. He's always a fully formed character. Mm, yeah. I, I yeah. like the fact as well that Max is Max is the ship. Yeah. The way he talks about I can do and I do, I have this X, Y, Z, and the way he manipulates the shape of the ship so quickly and so um, responsively, it just makes you feel like uh, David is completely surrounded by and cradled by him, mm. which again makes him feel trustworthy because you kind of have to at this stage. I could fly at 12 times the speed of light. I have fluent in over 6 million forms of communication. <laughs> <laughs> but also, look, I made a, a nice little seat for you. You can sit down right here. All the controls are right at your fingertips. It's super easy to, like, he's a very, if he is a GLaDOS, he's a, a very amiable GLaDOS yeah, because he's yeah. just, he's kind of cute in his design too. Like when he does those little head tilts and stuff, he almost is like a robotic dog. Mm, yeah. yeah. I like that he has different irises to close and open the eye so yeah. that he can do things like beetling his brows or um, giving a side eye, he can do those sorts of things. It's kind of great. It's amazing how much emotion is communicated from this one eye. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, they did a really amazing job with the puppeteering work on him. Round, round, get around, I get around, yeah, get around, round, round, I get around, I get around. Where the kids are hip. My buddies and me, you're getting real well known. Yeah, the bad guys know us and they leave us alone. I get around, 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 I get around,
couple of yep. details I noticed. Greece released just weeks before the 1978 section is set in June of 78, directed by Randall Kleiser. And as they're driving oh. home, they're playing, you're the one that I want. The one. Yeah. So, yeah. Nice little nod there. Um, the frisbee feeding that De- uh, David does with uh, his dog, uh, Bruiser, that's apparently how, at least back in the uh, 70s and 80s, you got dogs to uh, learn to love that frisbee. You fed them straight out of it. So that was a uh, neat little detail there. Bruiser, his eye detail, I was like, why has he got heterochromia? Like, why is he... He's got this strange pale eye like David Bowie. Like, he's this really distinct dog. And then, Sharon, you pointed out that that's exactly it. So when... Well, my theory was that they deliberately picked a dog who looked very, very distinctive yeah. so that when David comes back in eight years, we know it's the same dog. Yeah. And he even feeds us that with uh, the, uh, the, the uh, just the aside, you know, I, I don't uh, know uh, what I want to do with my life. As a young dog, you might not be able to understand that. He's just like... <laughs> <laughs> like feeding us the line that Bruiser is young enough to still be alive in eight years, which is neat. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I noticed this time because the Blu-ray was just that good that when, like, at the po- point where David is is um, just kind of collapsing because he's just met his aged parents, and poor Veronica Cartwright was like, "Do I have to look this bad?" Um, yeah. But you know, she, she sort of comes back into herself once David's uh, you know, back, and then that they, the parents sort of reclaim their lives. But it, you really feel for them at that point; they just look like they've been through the wars but at the point when he's like oh god this is my mom and dad and bruiser licks his neck you can totally see peanut butter on joey kramer's collar (laughs) (laughs) which by the way if you watch the mask when he wakes up and max is licking his ear we hate movies notice this there is an open jar of peanut butter with a spoon in it on the nightstand and that's clearly because the uh the crew were like right just smear that on jim carrey's ear and then let the dog go at it and they didn't take it away nice also in this is kind of influential on Donnie Darko as in like I said earlier it's a tangent universe but it's just much clearer of a movie like you know you don't end it going hang on how did that all work like it's actually pretty clear in Flight of the Navigator how it all worked I know kids sci-fi movies have a tendency to do that okay if you fold this piece of paper in half and push a pencil through it and that's how we explain like putting um, too much air in a balloon uh, yeah that's that's a wormhole wormholes yeah but the um they do not overwhelm you at all with the explanation of how um, uh, faster than light travel would affect somebody's aging. It's made very simple, and I think this was probably the first film I'd ever seen that that put that and, and framed it in a way that mm. I understood. And there is a genuine note of pathos at the end when uh, he's like, you know, I'll, I'll take you back home. And like he was going to leave him there anyway, but there, I always interpreted his, like, you know, goodbye, Max, as I kind of want to go explore the universe because, you know, I like this whole being the navigator thing. And, like, he has to, like, it's, it's a little, like, he feels the pull back to his family and his time as well. But there is, and it's helped by Alan Silvestri's score, which yeah. is just wonderful and transcendent but because of its time displacement because it's set in 78 and 86 the way that back to the future is set in 85 and 55 
and because it refuses to patronise its audience, it is both a cult favourite and an evergreen classic. It's like a period piece set in 86 and 78, rather than a film just made in 86. And it doesn't age like many of its peers, and it will appeal to children generations hence. I'm so glad it looks so good on this uh, this new um, Blu-ray. And it might... If enough kids see it, it may even play into the grand tapestry of peace-loving sci-fi that might one day help us connect to an alien intelligence. And my profound realisation for the end of this is that considering what we've done to the planet and to each other, if I had to pick between your average adult and your average kid to represent us as a species to alien intelligence, I would pick the kid pretty much every time for their energy and adherence to justice for their lack of bullshit and absence of despair and because they haven't lived long enough yet to tell the marked difference between 2012 and 2020 for the reason that David risks vaporization in order to escape a life of captivity kids are adults who haven't given up There's a wonderful touch at the end of the movie when um, his brother calls him home in 1986 using the old fireworks which don't go off properly because they're eight years old and knackered and they were supposed to go off on July 4th in 1978. Uh, When he goes back and they're setting those off, that seals the timeline. That says this tangent universe will not now come to pass because Mm -hmm. these fireworks will have been used. Obviously, it's not a cause and effect but it's a nice little signifier that you still get the fireworks, they're just going off here instead. Those fireworks yeah. were well, always intended to launch when David came home, and they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just thinking the exact same thing. School of Movies is funded by Patreon, and our $15 sponsors get credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Finbar Nicole, Abel Savard, Michael Haskell, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Angus Lee, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Johan Clayson, Joe Gesiga, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Matthew A. Siebert, Kat Esman, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Tom Painter, Dan Hepner, Marty Hui, Mark Luksh, Brian Novak, Frankie Punzi, Aaron Lecluse, Lorraine Chisholm, Timothy Green, Cassandra Newman, Duran Barnett, Benjamin, Joseph Gluck, Greg Downing, Kieran Dachler, Dan Mayer, Jameis Enright, Nick Ord, David Sheely, Chris Finnick, and Joe Crow. You are the Navigator. That will about do it for Flight of the Navigator. Is there anything I've missed? uh, Yeah, I was going to mention, I feel like it's almost an anti-Chosen One narrative. Mm -hmm. You two are not special, but what is held inside your bodies most certainly appears to be. Exactly. Like, he happened to be a kid that 
Max found and grabbed. Yeah. Why me? Why not you? Yeah, there, there is no... He's just a regular kid, and I love that. It was almost it Jeff. Jeff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd have had more room in his brain. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that, because you still care about him, and he is still special because of the writing, the, the, the acting and the writing, but he's just a kid that Max happened to pick up. One thing I've been thinking about that popped into my head again, re-talking about um, David there at the end. Um, you know, we talk about things that feel evergreen and, you know, looking back on the eighties, that's a big popular thing right now. Right. And I was thinking to the show, stranger things mm-hmm. and how that, you know, mm. we kind of, you know, we pick like the, the very well-known things that that kind of pulls from, you know, the, the ETs, the Goonies, you know, and, and slash starfighter and things like that. But I didn't realize to watching it right now that I think 11 takes her entire performance of that character from the way David acts in 1986 when he's being questioned and interrogated by NASA. That kind of like almost like deer in the headlights, like talking like I've been through trauma and I can't really express it monotone thing is 100% lifted from Joey Kramer's performance in this. Nice. Oh. Ooh. And and I didn't see it till now, um, till watching it this time. But I can't think of another 80s film that had a child character. Maybe a little bit of Drew Barrymore in E.T., a little bit of that, too. But that's more playful than this. This is, you know, this kid's been through some shit, and he doesn't know how to express it. <laughs> and uh, that PTSD kind of thing I see a lot of. Also, the... The look in his bro- when he, when he tells his mother he loves her when he comes back, that carries so much emotional weight. And she almost seems to de-age in that one shot, even though we're already back in time when mm. he says that. But mm. when he says it to Jeff, Jeff's entire facial expression changes, and that that character should be so one note, you know. But we've now seen him as an adult. We've seen him, or as a fifteen-year-old, we've seen him go through. You know, whatever awfulness his life was being blamed for the loss and death of his brother. Mm-hmm. In that one moment, it's almost like that Donnie Darko thing where everybody sees everything that's played out at the same time. Mm-hmm. But it never happened, you know, in one shot. Of course, they have to add the little, you know, kids movie rainbow in the sky with the, the spaceship flying away and talking to David, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all I got. This movie's wonderful. I'm, I'm so glad it held up. And it you know, we were talking about lack of toxic relationships. Mm. There's almost nothing toxic in this movie. I think there's one um, kid using uh, the word retarded. Yeah, that's Jeff, and Jeff needs to grow Jeff. the fuck up. Mm-hmm. Especially, in the first five minutes of the movie. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I hate seeing that, but again, it, it is unfortunately a sign of the times, but it's yeah, still... Product of, yeah. Chalk it up to being a product of its time. Mm. And the Pee Wee Hermans having to make fun of the fat guy at Al's reptile thing are probably the only two things that, hey, fatty, too many Twinkies, are the kind of the two things that I'm like, oh, I really wish that wasn't there. But in both of those cases, they feel absolutely, yeah, product of the times. These are things that kids at that time would have said or would have thought. They're also in the back seat of a station wagon with no seatbelts on. Hooray. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was the oh, yeah, 70s. Really. Accidents weren't invented yet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the 70s. <laughs> yeah. I got a very Stephen King vibe from mm. especially the first half of the film that I 
didn't really put together before in previous times that I had watched this, yeah. but I the whole thing about him coming out and being displaced but remaining the same age mm. made me immediately think of Castle Rock, which mm. that that idea is definitely played with of somebody being put out of their time, and obviously it's dealt with in a much more... Um, a, a much more agreeable fashion here than it is in that show, but that there's just there were a lot of things you know in the beginning parts of this movie that made me think there's a lot of Stephen King in here, and I thought it, it worked really well. It kind of adds a lot of atmosphere and a lot of that creepiness that you want in a film like this. Mm. Well, and it would be, I mean, that that fits perfectly because that was right at the time either King's on his way up. Or he was near the peak of his popularity in the 80s at this point. He would, yeah. I mean, I think at that point he was pretty well established already. So. And Stephen King's It is being read at the beginning of Donnie Darko, which is set in like uh, 1988. So really close to this. <sighs> Just keeps looping back around. <laughs> That will about do it for Flight of the Navigator. Ladies and gentlemen, where can people find the work you're most proud of? We'll start with Chris. Hey, everybody. Um, real quick, before I say where to find my work, I just want to say what a joy it is, as <laughs> always, to talk to you all, particularly um, Cairo and Debbie, who um, I haven't talked to in a little bit. So it's really yeah. good. And um, to my new friend as well, um, is it Maya? I'm bad at reading right now. Oh, you know, that's perfect. All right. Hi, Chris. Second. Nice, nice talking to you as well. Um, you can find me by searching The Chippa Made This on Google. You'll find um, the four podcasts I do um, and my YouTube channel, Chris Chipman. You'll find the podcasts and various other shows that I do as well. I'm also a guest on many podcasts and have many other things upcoming. So uh, I hope that you check them out. I do one about Blockbuster called Talkbuster, one that's just a random interview show with friends called Shooting the Shit. Um, one called the Chipman Brothers Tangent with my brother Bob Movie Bob Chipman, who you may have heard of, and uh, Creating Geeks with my wife Sarah, which is a parenting with a geek bent and kind of revisiting stuff from our childhood, like this movie <laughs> kind of um, show. And that's me and where you can find me. Well, you can find some of our stuff on sequentially-yours.com, uh, where we talk about comic books and comic book-related um, media. Uh, something that I'm still proud of that I did six years ago, I'm still very proud of, is a two-part deep dive into the Max and what's going on with that comic. I absolutely had a blast doing that. Um, also, you can find some of the stuff that I've been helping on at somethingghoulish.com for more of a horror bent stuff. And you can find both of us on Twitter. Karu is MoonPanther22, and I am Bastet8300. And, you know... Feel free to talk to us. We'd love to t we we'd love to chat. Um, I generally, if I have something to say about a movie or a show, I usually say it there. Um, I said something that I have pinned on my Twitter that I'm very proud of talking about Sense Eight. Which, if you haven't seen that show, watch that show. That show's amazing. And I did a recent one about Paranormal Activity as well. Lots of lots of cat pictures, and if you ever want to share pet pictures, I never do not want to see your pet pictures. So, 
couple of side notes, guys. That's awesome. I love the Max. I absolutely love the Max. And every time I bring it up, nobody ever knows what the hell I'm talking about. They're like, what? <laughs> so I think that's great. Uh, side side note, we're fostering a dog for a little bit. And I'll send you a picture of what the new dog oh, looks like. The pit- yeah. yeah, yeah, our little pit bull. I think um, if if he ends up working out, we're probably going to end up keeping him. But we'll, we'll see how it goes. Fail. We've only had him for a couple of days. Anyway, um, I would like to actually plug the New Century Multiverse on this one because I was uh, recently a voice for one of Alex's works on Uncivil Outlaw. It's uh, an episode called The Odd Couple, where I voice a an, a kind of elderly uh, wizard named Merlin, and she <gasps> is awesome. And I had so much fun working on that uh, working on that episode and kind of finding that character that I just wanted to plug that real quick. So. Quite beautiful, aren't they? A voice at my side clipped, making me jump. Merlane stood, neck craned, studying the heavens with me. I once believed they were prettier when I was younger, but they've taken on new aspects since then. They're more beautiful to me now for their complexity. That and Doom Patrol Season 2, which is currently releasing on HBO now. Thank you. Nice. And it's probably yeah. worth noting that uh, we had 12 applicants for Merlane, and I had like so many great voices, and they're, they're, no one could quite get the cocktail right for this character. And somehow, Maya, with like just this weird little ad lib, you just kind of nailed it. Uh, I'll stick that ad lib <laughs> in at some other point. It's not suitable for this podcast. No. <laughs> But uh, but yeah no it's it's wonderful to have you on board I I'm really hoping to see more uh, of you playing Merlane later. Thank you. Okay um, and next week our commission season continues with an absolute favourite from last year. You remember that year ten years ago? A modern day masterpiece from gifted director Ryan Johnson, Knives Out. So we will see you for that tale of familial disharmony and forward thinking. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. Compliance. Compliance.